Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta, where we are committed to changing lives with faith, hope, and love. We're so glad you are here. Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Listen again for the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. People will go to extraordinary lengths when they believe what they're doing is right. We will go to extraordinary lengths when we believe what we're doing is right. This is the conclusion of Dr. Dan Ariely professor of behavioral economics at Duke University. His lab studies when and why people lie and why they cheat. And I'll give you the punchline. People lie and cheat far more when they believe they're doing it for something that's right. And that's indicting for a pastor to hear. And it should be indicting for us as Christians to hear that this is a risk. Now, Dr. Ariely was featured in a documentary about Elizabeth Holmes. You might recognize her name, it's been in the news. She was the disgraced founder and CEO of Theranos. And in March of this year, she was convicted on four counts of fraud 
to her patients and investors. And it was big news because her company was a biomedical startup that had promised to revolutionize blood testing. If you've ever gone in for a blood draw, you know they're not fun. Sometimes they seem to take more and more and more vials of your blood. You wonder how many do they really need to run all those tests. Well, Elizabeth Holmes wanted to change that. And her vision was, what if instead of those vials of blood, what if you could run the same tests with a finger prick? I know my kids would appreciate that. I would appreciate that too. And we're not alone if we think that's a great idea. Lots of people thought it was a great idea, so much so that, that $400 million were invested into her firm because it was such a compelling vision. That vision attracted talented scientists, influential leaders to join her board. It enticed Walgreens into a partnership. At its height, Theranos was valued at $9 billion, and Elizabeth Holmes was named the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. And then everything came crashing down. And if you've seen the documentary, or you've seen the Netflix series, or you've listened to the podcast about this, you know that it turns out the technology never worked. The results weren't there. The grand vision was an illusion. And we wonder how could so many smart, accomplished people turn a blind eye to all those red flags? Well, they believed that what they were doing was right. They believed they were part of a solution. They believed they were on the brink of affordable, accessible blood testing. And people, we know, will go to extraordinary lengths when they believe what they're doing is right. In our New Testament lesson today, we encountered a man headed from Jerusalem to Damascus. His name is Saul. And this is a man who goes to extraordinary lengths because he believes what he's doing is right. Saul is named after King Saul, the first king of Israel. You may know him as the Apostle Paul, but like many people in his day, he had a Jewish name and a Roman name. And Saul is his Jewish name. He was born and raised Jewish. His religion is not just part of his identity. It shapes everything he does and everything he believes. And so great is Saul's zeal for his faith that he becomes a religious leader. Not just any religious leader, a top religious leader. He has serious influence and power and connections he takes his responsibility seriously, he takes the scriptures seriously, and he will stop at nothing to preserve the purity and sanctity of the Lord's chosen people. So when a rogue sect begins to turn the mind and hearts of his flock to someone called Jesus, Saul doesn't hesitate to act. He goes door to door, person by person, eradicating this spiritual infection. And here's the thing, Saul is the superhero of his own story. He thinks he's vanquishing evil. When he sets his face toward Damascus, he is certain, he is certain that the work he does is to the glory of God. Because people go to extraordinary lengths when they believe what they're doing is right. We don't like to imagine that we've been in Saul's shoes. We may not feel comfortable pondering that question. Have you ever felt like Saul? 
Have you ever felt that kind of certainty, that kind of conviction? But I'm here to tell you, you have, I have, and we all have. We all fall into that trap of us versus them and good against evil, and that righteous anger is intoxicating because we know we're right. And it can feel like no matter what we do, it's acceptable. No matter what we say, it's acceptable. The ends justify the means. See, when Christians read the story of Saul, we often put ourselves in the shoes of the people Saul is persecuting. We identify with those Christians that Saul is dragging into prison, and that's one way to look at the story, but I would challenge us to see it a new way today. I'd like to challenge us to realize that we live in a majority Christian country with openly Christian community leaders. We don't have to hide our faith the way that early church did. We live in a society arranged around Christian holidays under a legal system influenced by, infused with Christian ideology. So maybe we have less in common with those marginalized, persecuted early Christians and a lot more in common with Saul. And it's true, because sometimes our zeal for politics overrides our zeal for people. And our zeal for convention overrides our zeal for connection. Our zeal for being right overrides our zeal for doing the right thing. We don't like to think of ourselves as Saul. Maybe we should. We don't like to think that we should wrestle with that difficult question Saul received. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Maybe we should. Maybe that's a question we do well to wrestle with. Saul is committed to eradicating the gospel because it's different, because it's challenging, because it threatens to upend what he knows, what he's been taught, because he doesn't understand it. He doesn't even try to understand it. Remember, Saul is the superhero in his story, and we often, maybe too often, think we're the superheroes of our stories. But the hard truth is that when we heap heavy burdens on the vulnerable, when we kill off challenging ideas, when we push away people who act and behave and make decisions that are different from us, we can go to extraordinary lengths because we believe what we're doing is right. And when we do that, we follow the footsteps of Saul. And we know where those footsteps lead. They lead to a traumatizing, crippling, near-death experience with the risen Lord. And those may be footsteps we don't want to necessarily follow. Saul isn't the first person or the last to encounter God and, and be uh, humbled into making a spiritual U-turn. In our Old Testament reading, we learn about a man named Balaam. Balaam is a sorcerer from Moab. And if you remember your Old Testament history, Moab and the Israelites are kind of long-lost cousins, if you go far enough back. Balaam is the sorcerer from Moab. The king summons Balaam because a new group of people have moved into the neighborhood. And the king isn't so sure about them. Not so sure about these Israelites, these newcomers, the Hebrew people. So the king wants Balaam to curse them in hopes that a powerful word from Balaam will preserve the purity of the community. 
Balaam gets on his donkey and off he goes. Off he goes, but the donkey stops short. The donkey stops short when an angel of the Lord blocks the path. Balaam can't see the angel, but no matter what he does to the donkey, the donkey will not move, refuses to move. And instead of moving forward, finally the donkey lays down in the middle of the road. And then, since Balaam still isn't getting the hint, the donkey starts to talk. Now, if you or I were Balaam, this would be the end of our road trip. We would go home and we would get our heads checked because donkeys don't talk. But let's read the story in a, in a different light. Let's read it like this. Balaam is a spiritual guide, an influential, well-connected envoy of the king. The donkey is a possession. It's a possession. The donkey has no power. It has no status. It's not special. It's not celebrated. It's not treated very well. And its only real contribution in the world is carrying around Balaam. But we know that God is no respecter of status. God works through the ordinary, the humble, the powerless, the overlooked. God works through those voices that we like to silence and shut out because they're different and unexpected. Balaam, for all his worldly vision, is blind while the donkey sees. Now, the moral of the story then might be that even a donkey can recognize the Lord's presence. Even a donkey knows when it's time to turn around. So where are you being called to turn around? Where are you hitting a wall? Where is your pathway blocked? Where are you constantly coming up short? If you're like me, you spend hours praying for God to lift barriers, to make a way where there is no way. And God can and God does do that. But if you've been praying that prayer over and over and over, and that way is not appearing, it might be wise to consider that God may be the one standing in your way. What if God is blocking your path? What if the barrier that you're pushing up against is the Lord himself? 20th century theologian Karl Barth warned Christians not to put limits on the ways that God can show up in our lives. He wrote this. He said, God may speak to us through a flute concerto, through a blossoming shrub, or through a dead dog, maybe even a donkey. We shall do well to listen to him if he really does so. See, we do put limits on God. We do ignore voices that are too different from our own. We run from those who would hold us accountable. We smother the spirit when it dares to challenge our beliefs. We root out people who do not fit our view of the world, and we draw lines between us and them. And we draw those lines with the righteous anger of Saul and with all the conviction of Balaam. And we do it in the name of the Lord. See, that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. To say that you are representing the will of God in this kind of way. To say that we are acting on behalf of God the way that Saul believed he was acting on behalf of God when he ripped apart families 
and imprisoned men and women, clearing out the neighborhood of undesirables. Saul was willing to go to extraordinary lengths because he believed he was right. When Saul reaches Damascus, he has a second encounter, this time with a disciple named Ananias. God calls Ananias to tend to Saul, and Ananias says, I don't think that's a good idea. See, I know about this guy Saul, and Saul is one of them. But God says, no, Ananias, Saul is one of mine. I think that Saul learns his lesson. When we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, these are the words we get from this person, once a persecutor, and then later, later, an evangelist for the faith. He writes this. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic power and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I possess and hand over my body, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We dare not draw lines between us and them because God's beloved is always on the other side. Jesus is always on the other side. And what we know about Jesus' life and ministry is that he was adamant. We are not called to cut people out of the circle. We are called to draw a bigger one. So our invitation this week is to draw a bigger circle, to set aside our fear and our distrust and our, even our conviction that we are right and show kindness to someone we do not understand. I wanna challenge you not to pick the low-hanging fruit. I wanna challenge you to, to think of the person you criticize when you scroll through Facebook, that family member that you make fun of to your friends. Who gets on your last nerve? How can you show kindness to them? Well, take a few, uh, about a minute and think of a person in your life you do not understand, write their name down, and write down one concrete act of kindness you can show this week. It could be a phone call, a note, you could bring them coffee, it could be a 10 minute conversation where you really, truly, empathetically listen to them. Whatever it is, write it down on your bulletin, make a commitment to do that. Let us pray. Loving God, we lift up the names we have written to you. We pray your healing on these strange relationships. We pray that the grace that you have filled us with, that we would have the courage to share it with others, especially those we don't understand. Forgive us for harboring grievances. Forgive us for taking pleasure in putting others down. Open our hearts to love those who you love. And remember always that they are yours. Amen. This podcast is a ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Marietta. Come join us Sundays at 189 Church Street, Marietta, Georgia, or visit us online 
at fpcmarietta.org.